Lovely to see all of you here this morning. We're going to dive into that passage and have a look at it. Uh, They say that actions speak louder than words, that a provocative action can be far more than a mouthful of words, though, of course, in the age of the photo opportunity, we are a bit harder to impress these days, maybe, than we used to be, and we are tired of people showing off incessantly on their social media feeds. But think for a moment about the two leaders involved in the Ukraine war at the moment. Think about Zelensky and about Putin. And think about the things that we see Zelensky doing. He's there and he's in his combat fatigues. He's out on the streets with sort of bomb damage all around him. Then you've got Putin behind that big table uh, sort of five miles uh, from anybody else. And those two uh, actions and images that we see of them and how they conduct themselves uh, speak to us. They say a lot more than their words alone. And in the history of Israel, there have been many times when the prophets had literally given up on words because their words never got past the defenses of their hard-hearted peers. And so it was then that they turned to action, actions that would go beyond words and that would awaken the spirits and the minds of their listeners. For instance, Jeremiah wanted to challenge the easy optimism of the people who were unconcerned at the threat of their vast neighbor, Babylon. And so what did Jeremiah do? He made an ox's yoke. And he literally, he put it around his neck. And he just walked around. And people must have thought he was absolutely bonkers. But of course, his purpose was to say, this is what's going to happen to the people of Israel. Ezekiel was told by God to pick up all his belongings in full view of everybody and to pack them all up and then just literally to walk off into the sunset to symbolize that the day would soon come when the people of Jerusalem would be forced into exile. In the passage uh, that Deepak read for us this morning, uh, we we see two powerful symbolic actions that Jesus takes. First of all, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, and secondly, his clearing of the temple courts. As we look at each in turn, I'd love you to ask yourself, well, what did those actions symbolize? What was the point that Jesus was making that couldn't be made simply in words? And then secondly, how are those two linked together? Let's look first at Jesus' choice to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. All the gospel writers insist and stress that this is no accident. It's it's not as though Jesus was walking along, sees a donkey, all thinks that would be fun, and jumps on the donkey and goes in Jerusalem. Jesus had sent ahead. He made a secret plan uh, with someone whose name we don't know that the disciples knew nothing of because he wanted to be absolutely sure that he would enter uh, the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey just as the Passover festival was really getting going. At that time, Jerusalem would have been swamped with pilgrims. In those days, every adult male Jew within 20 miles of Jerusalem had to be there 
and many tens of thousands more came from across Israel and from the ancient Near East. And it was to a city surging with people, people who were keyed up with religious expectation that Jesus comes. And his timing at the start of the festival, uh, together with the manner of his arrival on a donkey, was designed very specifically to draw attention to Jesus' true identity. Matthew reminds us of the primary purpose in Jesus' mind, consciously to lay claim from the prophecy in Zechariah to be the king. So we maybe see uh, the donkey as a sign of humility. And it was to in, in part, but it was a very regal claim of Jesus uh, to come on a donkey because he's laying claim of this prophecy from Zechariah that that's what the king would do. He's laying claim to this identity to be the king, the Messiah, God's chosen one. And the people's response tells us that they completely understand the power of this symbolic action. They, what do they do? They break palm branches from the trees and they lay them in front of Jesus, just as the people had done hundreds of years previously when Jehu was proclaimed king. And they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Another recognition that they saw Jesus coming as the Messiah, the promised one from the house of David. Who was David? David was the great king of Israel. Many commentators have also sensed another echo to Jesus' action. 200 years earlier, the Jewish nation had been scandalized by the behavior of Antiochus Epiphanes, who'd profaned the temple in Jerusalem by sacrificing pigs on the altar and making offerings to Zeus and turning the temple courts into, into brothels. And it was the Jewish hero, Judas Maccabeus, who started his popular revolution against Antiochus at the temple. That's where he started, cleansing and purifying the temple. And we read then that the people's response was to cut down branches and to sing celebratory psalms. So in recent history, another man had ridden into Jerusalem in such a fashion, and his intent had been to rescue the temple for true worship. So with Jesus' careful timing and choice of a donkey and the crowd's exuberant response, we can begin to see how powerful and provocative action he took on that first Palm Sunday. But the second is that he comes to the temple, and some, including Judas, might have guessed and hoped that he'd go straight to the governor's palace and start a revolution. But instead, he comes to the huge temple complex. I'd just like to tell you a tiny bit about the temple because it will help you understand what Jesus did a little more clearly. At the temple in Jerusalem, <clears throat> some of you may have been, covered quite a big area, and it was essentially a series of ascending courtyards with the court of the priests and the Holy of Holies right in the middle. Now, if you imagine for a second that Christchurch, kind of our big site here, it is the Temple of Jerusalem, this is how it would be. Pretty much all of us would be sat in the car park this morning. That was the court of the Gentiles, and anybody 
could be and go and worship in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, next, say maybe the concourse down the side there, uh, that was uh, the court of the women, where no Gentiles could come, but where Jewish women uh, could come and sit. And so that would sort of be there. You could sort of hear and sort of see what was going on, but you weren't intimately involved. Then, the kind of this main body of the church here uh, would, be a, was the, would be like the court of the Israelites, where only uh, Jewish men, no women, were allowed. And that was where the main services and activities took place. And then lastly, I guess maybe sort of this bit up, maybe it's the kind of this bit up here, and the drum cage is the Holy of Holies. And, and so, you know, that was kind of separate, and nobody could go into those bits. Uh, one priest, once a year, was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, but when they entered the Holy of Holies, they had a rope tied around their leg, uh, lest God smite them dead uh, during their act of worship. And so rather than somebody having to go in and collect them, they could just be pulled out. Uh, so maybe we could just do that to drummers uh, in the future, uh, just, just in case. They'd probably quite enjoy it. The scene that Matthew describes when Jesus undertook his second action, the cleansing of the temple, the driving out of the money changers and the merchants, that took place in the bit of the temple that we, as Gentiles, would have been allowed into. So the, the equivalent of our car park outside. So the very outer part of the temple. It was always a busy and crowded place, but much more so at big festivals like the Passover. And the atmosphere out in the court of the Gentiles would be more market than church. You know, there were thousands of people coming and going, uh, and there were stalls to buy lambs and doves and animals for sacrifices, and there were other stalls to go and change your currency. And there were two particular kinds of trading going on that I want you to imagine out there in the car park. The first was the temple tax. Now, the temple tax had to be paid in shekels, but there were people coming from all over the Mediterranean, and they came with all kinds of different currencies in their pockets, and so they needed to change that currency into temple shekels that you could use in the temple. Now, that was a bit like uh, changing money at an airport, in the sense uh, that there was pretty much no competition, and so there were very steep rates uh, levied on people. So you lost a lot of money uh, that way, lots of chance uh, to be ripped off. There was also the selling of doves and other animals. And these doves were necessary for temple visits, but they had to be of a certain standard. And a dove bought in the temple precincts could cost as much as 20 times its street value. But unless you had a temple-approved dove, you couldn't take your dove into the temple. Now that is a very nice markup for all you business-oriented people here. And we know that the dove stalls were the private property of the family of Annas, who was the high priest. So his family was onto a really cushy little deal. And so it's there in the court of the Gentiles that Jesus arrives when he comes into Jerusalem. He doesn't say anything. He's way past words at this stage. He just starts to overturn all those tables, all those market-like stalls, and drive out these bewildered stall holders. Can you imagine the scene? There are 
mad livestock running everywhere. There's pots of money smashing on the floor. And there's a sudden hush begins to descend. And fingers point as people slowly realize who it is and what he was doing. Well, what was he doing? Jesus summarizes the meaning of his anger. He says, it's written that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The prophet Isaiah, centuries previously, had given the people, when they were in exile, a vision of what the temple should be. It should be a place for all nations to worship and to know the grace and the love of God. Even the eunuch, even the foreigner, should experience it as a place of peace and hope and salvation. The temple was to be a place of hope and light for all peoples, not a national treasure to be hoarded by Israel. But what did Gentiles find when they arrived at the only bit of the temple that they could enter? They, did they find a place of solemn worship? No, they found a market where the hum of trade uh, mingled with the bleating and the cooing of animals and birds. And moreover, especially on the great feasts, opportunities for extortion abounded. And rather than say anything, Jesus just drove the whole lot out. What he did say was to quote from Jeremiah, who prophesied against his peers for turning the temple into a den of robbers, a place of corruption and gross superstition. The temple, the very heart of the whole system of ancient Judaism, had singularly failed to be what God called it to be. Instead of being a place of prayer for all people, it had become corrupt and self-centered. And Jesus, full of righteous anger, would just have no more of it. So if you take these two actions together, the donkey, the clearing of the temple courts, what does this pair of richly symbolic actions point to? Jesus came to Jerusalem as the king of peace and was hailed by the people as such. His first act was not to appoint a revolutionary council or storm the Roman praetorium. It was to go to the religious heart of Israel and cause maximum disturbance there. He was saying something very powerful through those actions about the nature of the temple itself and all that took place there. The temple had failed in its God-ordained role as a witness to the nations and a place of salvation for all people. And so it was now being relegated to the sidelines, no longer to play a significant role in God's purposes for salvation. Jesus' kingly act in the great tradition of reforming kings was to begin a transformation far deeper and far more radical than popular opinion sought. Many were waving in enthusiasm for a king and for a new start for the people. Jesus started to show that the very basis on which forgiveness was granted, the very foundation on which we enjoy peace with God, those things are about to be overturned. The end of the temple is in sight. It was becoming obsolete. And the first hints of what this would mean are beautifully just 
popped in at the end of our passage this morning. After he drives the market holders from the temple, what does Jesus do? He attends to the poor and the lame who seek him out there. He heals them and he brings them comfort. And to the children who, like children across the world, pick up the excited praises of the crowd and chant them back innocently within the temple courts. The blind and the lame, like the Gentiles, were kept at arm's length in temple worship. So were the children. But it's them, the fragile ones, who are the focuses of Jesus' care, as God had always intended. And later that same week, Jesus would begin to make things a little clearer at the Passover meal with his disciples. He'd take a cup and say, this is my blood of the new covenant. The old covenant, the one based on temple sacrifice, is obsolete. The new one, founded on his sacrifice once and for all for the sin of the world, was being born. Now we are so fortunate to have our worship founded on centuries of reflection on the New Testament and on this passage. We've kept clean, we've kept alive the important things about the new covenant. We don't have to tie a piece of rope to the drummer. There is no need for priests and for go-betweens. Each one of us doesn't need to go between anybody. It's me and it's God. We've learned through the centuries that there is nothing that we can do to merit the love and the grace of God. There's no sacrifice that I can make. There's nothing that I can do that is going to love, make God love me more because the sacrifice has already taken place on the cross. We just receive that sacrifice with thanks and with reverence. But this passage does rightly prompt some searching questions. How easy is it, really, for the seeker and the curious and the broken-hearted and the hesitant to experience God's grace and mercy within our community? Or, let's put the question another way around. Are we as determined as Jesus was that God's mercy and God's forgiveness are free and are available to everybody and that it is our duty to seek out the ones who are the most vulnerable and the least likely to believe that's true. I'll put it another way again. Are we as angry? See, there's lots of anger in this passage. There's the anger of Jesus and there's the anger of the religious leaders. Both were felt truly and deeply by the person involved. But it's the anger of Jesus, of course, that we find so interesting. Are we as angry and as scandalized as he was uh, that the vulnerable were left out and excluded, those least able to assert themselves? I rejoice in the many ways in which we as a local church uh, work so hard for everybody to find this as a place of welcome and truth and love. We are about to jump in 
to this amazing uh, Holy Week where we see, of course, that the actions of Jesus are the things that hold our attention as much as his words. He says some amazing things. But of course, this week is primarily about an action, about a death, about a self-giving on his part. And it will thrill us, and it will enthrall us, and it will move us to worship and to tears as we contemplate those great things. But of course the challenge comes back, as it does every Palm Sunday, that there is a Christian response, if it is word only, if it is just speaking out the things that we believe, if it's just singing these glorious songs of Palm Sunday, if our response is word only and it lacks action and it lacks grip in our lives and in our world, then there is an emptiness. Every time I sing a song on Palm Sunday, I'm always haunted by that knowledge about how easy it is to sing out, to wave branches, Uh, to say Jesus is Lord, but how much harder it is for me in my actions, in my behavior, in my treatment of others, uh, to, to tie those two things together. So I rejoice, rejoice, that so many of you, in a sense, have learned from Jesus through the life of this church what it means to knock down the walls, to open the doors, and to say, all are welcome here. But pray with me, as I pray for you, that this week, it will be your behavior arising out of the love of Jesus. It will be the way you treat others that will back up and beautify and exemplify what you believe. And so may God bring us next week to a jubilant and exultant celebration of Jesus' actions, actions that changed history, have changed us, and we believe still have the power to change our community. Amen.